Welcome to the Mini Brick, your date podcast for the biggest storylines, results, and controversies from the tennis world. Today is Monday, October 17th. Now, all of you Mini Break listeners will be hearing this episode on Tuesday, and that's because I've taken the past few days to recharge my batteries. Was a delightful, though certainly arduous, three weeks of work out in Los Angeles. A massive thank you to Michael Haston, the entire Tennis Channel team, for having me. It was such a pleasure, a thrill, an incredible incredible opportunity, all the adjectives you can imagine to be on the call for our dear friends at Tennis Channel was great to steer the ship through the morning session of T2 over the course of the past three weeks. Nevertheless, the early hours, I did need a couple of days to recharge the batteries. That said, I'm fully fueled and ready to go. Excited to recap another jam-packed, thrilling weekend of action in the pro tennis world. And perhaps some of you listeners don't believe me anymore when I continue to use those adjectives. Jam-packed, thrilling. How could those be the words to describe post-US Open October tennis? But There's a multitude of reasons why that has been the case. A, the chase for the championships, still very much alive on both the men's and women's side. It's always a good thing when those chase for the championships come down to the final event of the year. And on the women's side, you have, what, 13 players, I want to say, at the start of the week who had legitimate chances to qualify for the year-end finals in Fort Worth now. Over the course of the first day, we already saw a few players eliminated. That said, it speaks to the parity we see on the WTA Tour, and it speaks to why so many of the top-ranked players in the world continue to compete, even in this post-U.S. Open stretch of tennis. Of course, you also have players looking to establish themselves as we turn the calendar towards 2023. I suppose best ensconce themselves in the rankings to make a leap come next season, whether it be making that transition we so frequently frequently talk about from outside the top 100 to inside the top 100. You're qualifying for main draws of Grand Slams on your ranking. You don't have to play those qualifying rounds anymore, of course. You also start getting into more tour-level events based on your ranking as well. And then there's the next jump, right? Just inside the top 100 to in that top 50 range. If you're a top 50 player, boy, is the prospect of being seeded that much more in mind uh, as you look at your ranking. And so again, all of these micro leaps in the rankings, micro leaps in a player's positioning heading towards 2023. That's why we've seen so many players competing week in, week out. And then the final piece, I think, of this equation, and it applies again to both the men's and women's games here. I know this rant started off talking about the chase for the championships on the women's side, but perhaps last and most importantly, as we constantly refer to here at Cracked Rackets, we are clearly in the midst of a generational shift, right? And the pronounced retirements, pronounced might not be the right word there, but the significant retirements we've had over the course of the past few months, most notably, obviously, Serena, Roger Federer, but there have been countless other players, including, you know, rest in peace to the career of Andrea Seppi, who isn't a Hall of Famer, but was certainly on the radars for hardcore tennis fans like myself and Mini Break Podcast listeners over the course of his decade, decade and a half long career. You know, that generation of players in both the men's and women's game are slowly stepping aside. The players who have just been the constants in the top 30, top 50, top 100, like players like, say, the Songas, the Seppis, et cetera, Jill Simones have been over the years. You know, those players are out. 
and in come the Davidovich Fokinas, the Felix Ogier Aliasims, perhaps on a smaller scale, players like J.J. Wolf, who makes his first ATP final last year, players like Michael Emer, who is into another semifinal last week. And, you know, again, on the women's side, you look for Anna Blinkova, who captures her first WTA Tour-level title of her career. A player like Jasmine Paolini, who isn't going to be a top 20 player in the world, but you want to know someone who's probably going to be in the top 100 for the next three to five years and make a damn good living throughout the course of her career, playing first round after first round at least at all the slams, all these different Tour-level events. Jasmine Paolini, who hasn't been great, but has sustained herself here this year and was into the final in Cluj-Napoca. Of course, younger players like Potapova, Wang Xiyu, looking to make that leap in the rankings and position themselves for you know, another jump, perhaps. Can they scratch the surface of being elite in professional tennis? Both of them would like to find out. As such, they're trying to position themselves here in these year-end events. That was quite the tangent to start today's show. But again, it's been five days since I've been on the microphone. I'm hot. I'm coming in with takes here on today's episode. And as always, to go full circle, why is this Monday, October 17th episode, not Tuesday, October 18th? It's because we like to start out the mini break here with a recap of all the championship action. So that is my agenda, folks, here on today's show. I want to talk about Iga Svantec, title number eight, in San Diego. She suffers her first loss in a final on an indoor hard court the week prior in Ostrava, transitions to the outdoor hard courts, looked darn good in doing so on her way to victory. Again, lost her first set of the year to Jess Pagula, bounces back in the semis and played such sound tennis in set number three against Donna Vekic in that championship match. You know, I'm not sure what's left to say about Iga and do I have thoughts on Iga's, and I say this, Again, I can't think of a better term right now. Ega Nation, don't get mad at me. Her flailing or throwing the arms up in the air at the net as a distraction is probably the best word to use towards her opponent when her opponent has an easy pass. Do I have thoughts on that? Yeah, that's probably honestly the only new thought I can introduce about Ega here on today's episode because I really don't know what else to say. She is the best player in the world. She continues to assert that fact. Match in, match out, tournament in, tournament out. We can talk about what allowed her to have success in San Diego, but I'm not sure how, you know, she's, dare I say, and I say this in the most affectionate way possible, she's floating into that Novak, Nadal, Federer, Serena category here on this show where it's like, what's left to say? I feel like I've broken down her game in every aspect possible. I have historical comparisons I'd like to make. Who doesn't enjoy employing hyperbole from time to time or looking big picture at what seems possible for the 21-year-old? But that feels more like a December thought than a Monday, October 17th thought recapping championship weekend. So again, I want to talk about why Sviantec was able to get over the finish line, but not going to be the most Sviantec focused episode today, as particularly as it pertains to San Diego. I want to talk Vekic, want to talk Pagula coming oh so close to the finish line. Why a Danielle Collins match might just be a top five watch across men's or women's tennis in 2022. And again, offer some final thoughts on what was our highest level 500 level event in San Diego last week. Of course, on the men's side, two intriguing champions. And our dear friend here at Cracked Rackets, Gil Gross, who joined me last week on Monday to recap all the championship action, he branded Andre Rublev a February and October player, or he you know, milled around this concept of players who are great, in February, in October, which are 
subjectively, but kind of objectively, the two least significant months in the tennis calendar. You know, you have two guys. Well, I think Andre Rublev is already accused of being a a February-October player. And, I mean, look, another title for Rublev. He has looked so good over the course of the past two weeks. I know he didn't win the title in Astana, but played a great match before getting knocked out in three sets by Tsitsipas and was exceptional all week long on his way to the title. A fantastic victory in Guillaume, excuse me, Hion, uh, over Sebi Korda in the final. And, you know, again, good win over team in the semis as well. Rublev's got non-negotiables. We can talk about that. We can talk about, I suppose, mill around one more time, although we did this last week, so I'll try not to repeat myself too much. Has it been a good season for, 20, uh, for Andre Rublev in 2022? Did we get growth out of him. That's a topic for us to explore, talk about why I'm all in on Sebi Korda. Why, again, if you listen to our American men's coverage, and shout out to the American men, inching closer and closer to having 10 top 50 players, 20% of the top 50 Americans. Is this 1991 or something? Of all that group, we argue about the upside of all of them. Sebi Korda is always on my short list of who has the highest upside of any American man over the course of the next decade. I will bring up Corda in that conversation. No ifs, ands, or buts about it. It's just all the tools are so compelling, and he displayed them throughout the course of the week. I thought he was excellent in just about every round he played, and you know the win over RBA looked really good as well. Obviously, didn't play Rublev the best in the finals, but put a really smart match against Rinder Kanesh in the semis. And you know, again, I I never. Don't enjoy talking about Seppi Korda's game, so I'll probably do that here today. This intro is taking way too long. You want to hear coverage of the matches. I suppose I'm diving into it right now, but again, need to find my muscle. I uh, need to refine those muscles. Five days off is a lot here on this podcast. I guess I'm a little bit rusty myself. I missed a couple first serves here early on this show. Um and it's just going to be me steering the ship. And it would be incredible if I was like, all right, and now that we're 10 minutes in, let me bring in my guest. Let them talk for the first time. No guest today. Just going to be me riding Han Solo. But again, plenty to talk about in Hyon, in Florence. I already mentioned J.J. Wolf, Mikhail, uh, Michael Emer, excuse me, both making not- notable runs as we move uh, begin to look at turning the calendar towards 2023. But perhaps most notable, Felix Ogier Aliassime. For so long, it was, when's he going to win his first title? Well, Felix gets another title here. And again, making a case, is he a February-October player? I would argue the prior success at slams would indicate no, he is not. But gets a February title earlier this season. Now an October title for him was excellent in Florence. His serve, his forehand, non-negotiables. We can explain why he was just better at the serve plus one game than J.J. Wolf in that final. Better than everyone throughout the course of the week, was very impressed by Felix level once again. And then, of course, I didn't forget about you, Kluch, Napoka, Blinkova, Paulini, Potapova, Wang Shiyu. We'll get into it all, of course. The reason we're able to do that here on this show day in, day out, is because of the support we get from all of you listeners, and, of course, because of the support we get... And, of course, because of the support we get from our friends at Tennis Point. Remember, it's tennis-point.com for any 
equipment needs you might have. And look, it's getting cold here in the Midwest. Visiting my parents over the course of the past few days, always a good place to recharge the batteries, right? You get the home cooking. You're, I hope for most of you, just there's love in the air. It's a great place. You know, again, I'm feeling fresh, as you can tell here on today's show. But uh, again, it's cold now here in Michigan. It's going to be cold in many places now in the United States. It's time. Maybe you got to go buy a new pair of sweatpants. Maybe you got to go buy a new pair of shoes as you transition from outdoor tennis to indoor tennis. You want new strings, a new frame, whatever it may be. Our friends at Tennis Point have you covered. You go to tennis-point.com today. Use our promo code CR15. You'll get, not only let them know we sent you there, but you'll get 15% off all sale items, free two-day shipping on all orders exceeding $75. Best of all, a free can of Wilson Extra Duty Tennis Balls, tennis-point.com. The promo code is CR15. With that said, let's get into last weekend's action and let's start. I know I already talked about it a little bit, but let's just start with San Diego. All right, we'll get it out of the way from the get-go. I do not care in the slightest that Iga jumps up and waves her arms in the air as her opponent is running to the net to try and hit a passing shot. Now, you may say, is that a hinder? You know, again, it is that a hindrance? Under the rules, technically, it is not a hindrance. And maybe it's because I grew up playing a lot of doubles. Or maybe it's because I like the competitive aspect of tennis. I don't mind a little extracurricular mind games being played between opponents. Look, if you've ever hit a on-the-run passing shot... Yes, it, it you know it requires such discipline, such focus that to see an opponent flailing their arms, maybe that distracts you. You know what the response is to that as the opponent? Hit that player in the chest. Like try to tattoo them. If they're going to mess around, all rules are off. And like I don't even think it's that gross of a violation of the decorum, which seems to be the the discussion here of tennis. I think that's so stupid. These are two athletes competing at the highest level, at the highest intensity, of the highest pressures of the professional tour. And it's just like for people to say it's not a good look. What? It's not a good look that Iga Svantec is trying to compete and find any way to win every single point that she plays, even when she's in a disadvantageous position, such as popping up a first volley where Donna Vekic was clearly going to have a clean strike at the ball no matter what. Like, I think that's stupid. Like, why does that, why would I get upset about that? Especially if you are a fan of the competition. She is literally, you know, again, that's, Thinking on the spot, dare I say, to be impressed by the improv, uh, improvisational, uh, improvisational skills. That's the word. And here's the spin zone for you. Iga's not quitting on any point. Iga's trying to jump around, make a move, make a motion, do anything to throw her opponent off. And there's nothing in the rules that says you can't move your. You know why is it different? Or there's nothing in the rules. Let's finish that thought first. That says she's not allowed to pick a side or jump from one side to the other, right? Let's say she was trying to anticipate. She says, I'm guessing Vakic is going line. Why is Fiontech allowed to jump line as Vekic is swinging as opposed to jumping up in the air while Vekic is swinging? I see no difference in those two principles. Now, you might say, well, one is a tennis motion. The other is an extracurricular. I don't agree. I just don't agree with that fact. Again, it's no different than faking a poach in doubles. If I fake left as you're getting ready to hit the return, but then you know push off and go right, is that a hindrance now? Am I not allowed to fake my motion at the net? If you're going up for an overhead and getting ready to swing, am I not allowed to take off and jet from one side of the baseline to the other, just trying to guess correctly where you're supposed to go? 
Like, no! The answer to all those questions are no. It's just, it's absurd. It's absolutely absurd. I don't understand. It's two par- twofold absurd. A, there are people in Ega Nation, a nation I love dearly, a nation I continue to get exposed to more and more on my Twitter feed, which, by the way, I have no problem with. Um, I just don't know why, why you let other people's perception of this motion upset you. I don't know why you need every journalist now to condemn, well, if you're getting mad at Iga Svantec, why aren't you getting mad at Emma Raducanu? Why aren't you focusing on this other aspect of this player who flailed on this one instance? You know, you start getting clips sent around all throughout Twitter. Like, it's not that big of a deal. (laughs) Like, again, it was one point. A point I would point out Svantec ended up losing anyways as Vekic made the pass comfortably. Like, again... It's a throwaway comment. It's a throwaway moment. It's a flail or a point or a motion. Like, no one's going to remember three weeks from now or a month from now. And the fact that that's the only criticism coming out of the match, again, speaks to, well, you don't have any questions about her game. Like, there's no doubt, as I will continue to say, about Iga moving forward. She is that good. Now, we're on 50% watch here at the Mini Break Podcast because her break percentage, down from the Incredible Heights 52.8, 53% where she was floating around. As of right now, she's breaking serve 50% of the time, flat even, 50.0% of the time through her uh, 2022 season. I mean, look, she's only she, she's not playing Guadalajara. I think she is playing the year-end championships. You're playing seven of the fellow top 10 players in the world. Obviously, it's a high level of competition. If she manages to sustain that 50% break percentage through that course of Guadalajara, we have to start looking, and this is a perfect late November, early December podcast, what's the historical comparison? Who hangs in even in the neighborhood of Iga Svantec as a returner historically in WTA Tour history? I mean, again, for Iga, it's just the relentlessness. Like, Pagula had to play so well in set number one. And Pagula, to her credit, played such a decisive first set in their semifinal, was taking everything a little early, a little on the rise, was swinging her uh, so aggressively through the forehand. And she was beating Iga in some of their forehand cross-court rallies. And again, just the pace she was able to generate on that cross-court ball Pagula hits a flatter ball. It's not the most dynamic. It's not the easiest for her to get outside the ball in that forehand wing and create angle. And yet it didn't matter that she was hitting a flatter ball because the pace with which she was taking that forehand early on the rise in set number one, so impressive. And yet, you know, again, Iga's relentlessness wins out. You look for Iga, who makes 70% of her first serves, fights off four of six break points in the match, perhaps most impressively wins 75% of her second serve points against Pagula. It's because it doesn't matter. First serve, second serve, all that has to happen is the baseline rally gets to neutral. And once it's at neutral, Iga's going to beat you because her backhand's better than yours. If you give her time on the forehand, now you're running all over the place. You never know where Iga's going to go. Short angle, cross court, inside out. I thought she did a much better job with the angle. She was generating just getting Pagula a little bit further stretched in the outer third of the court in sets two and three. You know, again, and with all due respect to Pagula, she just wasn't able to sustain her aggression throughout the course of two hours against Iga Svantec because that's what Iga does. She breaks you down and ultimately three-set victory for Iga there. Three-set victory for Iga over Vekic. Uh, I mean, look, she faced one break point. She was broken one time in set number two of the match. 
Vakic had dead legs in the third, no doubt about it, but Iga drew those dead legs out of her. Iga continued to keep her on the run, not hitting more than two balls in a row in the same direction. And, you know, the the Vakic backhand drop shot, which was a revelation throughout the course of this week. I like Vakic, it's ugly. She keeps two hands on the racket, and she really holds on to that ball till the last second on her strings, which is perhaps why it's so effective. Although I swear to God, every time Vakic hits it, I'm like, there's no way. That ball is going over the net, which perhaps makes it why it was as effective as it was. And yet, Iga's able to track that ball down. Iga's so dangerous on the slide. Iga was able to absorb some of Vekic's flat pace, in particular, the inside-out forehand with Vekic hit so well. Which Vekic hit so well? That's how you say that sentence in English. Uh, it was neutralized throughout the course of this match as Iga, again, so good at absorbing pace on her backhand wing. And then you just could tell once Vekic was broken to open that sec- uh, that third set, excuse me, that Iga had it. And, I mean, again, you look for Iga now, a laughable 64-8 and overall on the season. She wins her eighth title of her uh, of the year, eight titles in nine finals. She's played what? So she's 64-8 and if she's made... She's won eight titles, so she's played 16 total events, uh, half of them, half of them. She's won 50% of her events this season. Again, I got in trouble when I did this last time, but I've looked at the three-year primes of the elite of the elite in tennis history, the Navratilovas, Everett's, Graf's, Serena's, you know, Celis before she was unfortunately, you know, before what happened to her happened out on court, Hingis in her prime. This is the neighborhood they all float in, is you're winning. You're not just, you know, making the final in 50% of your events. You're winning 50% of your events in terms of all-time prime seasons. Now, Ika's in the mix, particularly as a 21-year-old. And again, you look for Ika, 64 victories overall on the season against top 20 opponents. Uh, You look for her overall 18-1 against the top 20 this year. Now, only 12 top 10 wins, which is beneath like 2013 Serena and the prime Celis Hingis seasons. They were more in the 15 to 20 range and a lot of times even exceeding 20 top 10 victories. That said, that's why I point to that 18 and 1 record versus top 20 opponents because we haven't had a definitive top 10 this season. Yeah, Own Jabur's a top 10 player. I think Pagula's definitively a top 10 player, and for what it's worth, uh, Iga. Forno against Jessica Pagula now this season. Outside of those two, though, has anyone definitively been a top 10 player this year? I think Coco Goff's been very close to it. I can't say she was definitively a top 10 player at all points of the year. Daria Kasakina, same deal. Can't say it definitively. The Sabalenkas and, you know, Sakaris, others of the world, Conteves, I can't say that definitively either. And that's why I think the top 20 player is the better metrics. I do think all those players have been top 20 at least this year. And I think this year was defined by a year where there were millions of top 20 players. Maybe, I know there's only 20 at any given time. We might have 30 top 20 players right now on the WTA Tour, but only one or two definitive top 10, top five quality players. And again, this is no diminishment of what Iga Svantec has accomplished because against that field of a plethora of top 20 players, she's 18 and one against them and has been that good. And by the way, three, three set victories for Iga this season. You look for her now, she's 16 and four in three set matches this year. 
She's winning over 80% of everything she does. And again, I don't know what's left to say tactically about Iga. She is just that good all around the board. Yeah, Vekic at times, Jung Chin Wen at times, Pagula in that first set. They all did an exceptional job of playing with elite pace to the Iga forehand, but none of them could sustain it. And that's what makes Iga so difficult is you don't only have to play high, your best quality tennis. You have to sustain that high quality tennis for at least two hours because if all else fails, Iga's going to make it a track meet. And that's why she's the definitive world number one. And that's why with all due respect to go full circle, I don't really care about what she's doing with her arms as she's desperately trying to compete to win another point. So yeah, that's my spin zone on all things Iga. Another San Diego title, eighth of the year against 64-8 and eight overall this season. She's flirting with a 90% win percentage, folks. And if she wins the year-end finals, we are going to have the conversation. Where does this individual season rank in the 21st century of best single seasons we've seen on the WTA Tour. That said, we'll save the fun of that conversation for the offseason. Let's wrap up our thoughts. Who were the other standouts in San Diego over the course of the week? Certainly Donna Vekic, who comes from qualifying to reach the final here in San Diego. It's her first tour-level semifinal since October of last year. And perhaps more importantly, her first significant tour-level final since Nottingham. 2019, maybe St. Petersburg 2019 as well. And you look for Donna Vekic. This run gets her back inside the top 50. Just a massive, massive moment uh, for the still only 26-year-old. And you look for Vekic now overall this season. Things trending in the right direction. Now, certainly it helps to rack up six wins and seven matches. And, you know, without it, I suppose she'd be 21 and 18 coming into the week. But 27 and 19 now overall on the year, had to play a ton of different qualifying as her ranking did fall outside the top 100 earlier this year. And, you know, comes through qualifying at Roland Garros, wins a match there, has to come through qualifying in Birmingham, makes the quarterfinals there, comes through qualifying in Eastbourne, wins around there, you know, comes through qualifying uh, as well here in San Diego, in Toronto, plays qualifying at Cincinnati. And, comes through qualifying in San Diego. She's done it the hard way to build back up her ranking. And I think that's why when we saw the emotion on her face, it meant that much more because you look for Donna Vekic here this season. Has she received a single wild card into any event that she's played? I don't think the answer to that question is yes. And look, you could understand why Vekic would be awarded a wild card. Oh, excuse me. She just got a wild card into Guadalajara this week. That's actually hilarious, but also very well-deserved given she's coming off of a San Diego I'm surprised that's not a special exemption. Her ranking probably doesn't qualify for it. Um, But back up to number 47 now after this run. And what perhaps was most impressive, you know, again, listen to these wins. Six and one over Sakari. No disrespect to Davis and Mandlik, the qualifying victory. Six and one over Sakari. Three and two over Pliskova. Six one in the third over Sabalenka. Seven six in the third over Danielle Collins. One of just 20 matches this season where Iga Svantec is pushed to a third set. What a run. I, I would challenge those four wins. Sakari, Pliskova, Sabalenka, Collins. Put this run up against any other run you've seen in this 2022 season. Krejcikova in Ostrava, maybe a little bit better. And she ultimately ends up with the title and she beats Iga. So not maybe a little bit better. It was definitively better. But like, was Jabur's run in Madrid that much better than this Vekic run to the final where she ends up running into the buzzsaw and only eight people have beaten Iga Sviantek this season, so there's no harm in that loss. 
what made it so impressive for Vekic was just the leap she made on serve after really struggling with her first serve percentage this year was under 56% for much of the season. Just, you know, she was over 60% in all but one of her matches in this run. And the only match she was under 60% was against Karolina Pliskova, where I think she hit double digit aces throughout the course of that match. And, you know, actually fought off four of the six break points that she faced. It started with the serve. And I thought the serve was particularly impressive for Vekic, her ability to hit the plus one forehand, her first strike inside out to just open up so much space for herself. I think Vekic is a sneaky, solid mover, not the most explosive athlete on the court, but anticipates very well and has a better first step than I have probably given her credit for in the past. And Look, the power tennis she's able to generate is easy. That backhand is extraordinarily smooth. Yeah, the forehand's a big backswing, but we saw how she absorbed and redirected pace against Sabalenka, Pliskova, Collins throughout the course of her matches, how comfortable she is going down the line and, you you know, absorbing and redirecting that pace off of both wings. You look for Vekic Collins, it was a break fest down the home stretch. And I mean, Collins was up a break for much of the first set, I think was up 4-2 or 3-2 break and had break point chances to go up 5-3, but Vekic just lingered. And it took her nine set points in that opening set, but Vekic ultimately able to get over the finish line in set number one. And, you know, again, Daniel Collins was so captivating in San Diego. There's just a viciousness with which she swings, the racket speed she generates, the way she really does whip that Babolat racket over her shoulders on both follow-throughs. I mean, the whip on her forehand is so pronounced. The way she drives through the backhand is absolutely gorgeous. I Just the explosion off of her strings I fell in love with Danielle Collins' tennis over the course of the past week, and it's just a reminder of why the two-time NCAA champion and this year's Australian Open finalist, Win Healthy, has constantly flirted with top 10 level tennis over the course of the past four years, really. And, you know, you look for Collins here this season, and don't worry, I'm coming back to you, Donna Vekic, I promise, but Collins is 19-10. Like, again, when she's been healthy— and when she's been on hard courts, she's unequivocally been one of the 10 best players in the world. Loses three sets to Rena Sabalenka. The first set, again, Collins played breathtaking tennis. As high level as anyone not named Iga or Barty has played all year long. Semifinals San Diego. Finals of the Australian Open. Quarterfinals of Miami. You know, again, she was really banged up, injured, did not play many matches throughout the course of the clay court or grass court season. But when she has been healthy... And when she's been on hard courts this year, the power is undeniable. And, you know, there are a couple of breakfast matches she played in particular. You know, she faced 16 breakpoint chances against Paula Bedosa, 17 breakpoint chances against Donna Vekic. Collins wasn't moving her best and was offering up hanging sliders uh, for opponents to just pulverize on second serves throughout the course of each of her matches. And, you know, given she was floating around 55% for serve percentage, just her opponents got too many looks at second serves. And ultimately that was her demise against Vekic. That said, boy, when Collins is on her front foot, when she gets a look at a short ball, there's just a decisiveness with which she plays. And again, it, there's a visceral reaction to watching her racket speed. So thoroughly enjoyable. Uh, but credit, again, to Donna Vekic, who knocks out Collins in that match. And, you know, again, for Vekic now back inside the top 50. You don't have to worry about playing slam qualies throughout the course of 2022. And 
she really has the entire season to build herself back up. No significant points on Donna Vekic's record, really until Roland Garros, until that first-round victory uh, from earlier this season. You look, lost first-round Australia, first-round Marbella, no points awarded for Billie Jean King Cup, didn't make it out of qualifying in Istanbul, first-round losses at uh, first round losses at a 60K, 100K event. She made the quarterfinals of the Paris 125K in May of 2022. That's her first significant points. May of 2022. She's got four free months to rack up points. Donna Vekic could get back into the top 25 if she manages to sustain this San Diego level. And you look for Vekic again, hardcore's a good place for her. You look for her career at the Australian Open. Donna Vekic, best she's ever done actually. Round of 16, February 2021. All right. Put it on the board. Donna Vekic into the top 30 by the start of the French Open next year. That's a hot take. I'm throwing at all of you listeners here on Monday, October 17th, although now the clock has changed to Tuesday. That said, again, uh, great run for Vekic, who just reminds us the power tennis, the creativity. Uh, she's just a good athlete. Belongs inside the top 50 when healthy. And then Jess Pagula, who just final thoughts on Pagula. 37 and 18 overall this year. Epitomization of the two-thirds rule where you win two-thirds of your matches. You're going to continue to move up the rankings accordingly. She's made eight quarterfinals here this year, all of them at the 500 level or higher. I mean, Jessica Pagula beats everyone she's supposed to beat at the big events. She does her job, puts herself in position to play the best of the best in the world. The problem is she keeps running into literally the best of the best in the world. Four losses to Iga this season. Uh, Fifth loss to Ashley Barty in Australia. Loses to Jabir in Madrid, who goes on to win the title. Uh, You know, it's just been tough. Like uh, for Pragula, the problem is she might have the highest floor of anyone not named Iga on the WTA Tour right now. You know what you're going to get match in, match out. Her ability to drive that ball through the court, open up space for herself, attack down the line, move forward, quality mover in the outer thirds. There's not a single obvious deficiency for Jess Pagula. The question is against the best opponents, how does she make life easy for herself? And that's the question she still has to answer. So, I mean, again, though, that's the last question she has left to answer. What is the elite weapon for Pagula to make life easy for herself? That's the only thing that has put a cap on her ceiling. If she finds that elite weapon, she's already five in the world. Like, this has unequivocally been a career year for Jess Pagula. She is not someone who has to worry about her performance in Guadalajara. She has clinched a spot in the Tour Finals, which is a crazy thing to say, given she was outside the top 50 for pretty much all of her career going in to uh, pre-pandemic. But since August 2020, you're making the short list of rising stars in the women's game. Obviously, Iga's going to be number one, but Pagula's got to be in your top five. She's been that good since during this stretch of time. And another great run for her in San Diego, unfortunately, ended by Iga Sviantek. But again, that's 20 minutes on San Diego. Hopefully, you all feel caught up. Shout out to our quarterfinalists as well. I never, I know I never talked. Paula Bedosa looked better. And I mean, Bedosa's still alive in the race to the year-end finals entering this week's action. So you keep an eye on her. She looked fit, moved the ball really well against Daniel Collins and returned particularly well, just was offering up, again, hanging sliders for Collins to pulverize uh, throughout the course and actually, I think I screwed things up. I think that's the match where Collins was up 
four, a break 4-2 and had a chance to go up a break 5-3. And Bedosa was able to work her way back, actually take a 6-5 lead before Collins breaks to force the breaker. And, I mean, again, it was all about... It was all about the return of serve in that match, and just Collins had more weapons at her disposal than Bedosa, who just, especially, again, just wasn't able to make life, wasn't able to win as many free points throughout the course of the match, was more reliant on Collins' misses than Collins was on Bedosa coming up with an error, but Bedosa looked better, Sabalenka continues to play good tennis, but should have won that match in straight sets, the double faults crept in once again against Donna Vekic, um... Coco Goff, quarterfinal, lost to Iga. It's a particularly tough matchup for Goff. And then, again, Madison Keys into another quarterfinal on hard courts. Madison Keys, despite her inconsistencies, has been that good on hard courts this year. Clearly a top 10 hard court player. As such, she's very much still alive in the race to the year-end finals. Somehow, Madison Keys hanging on. She needs a big week in Guadalajara, but... I'm pretty sure she's in control of her own destiny. If she can win the title or make a Cincinnati-esque run to the final, she probably gets in to those year-end championships. So that's your action from San Diego, the penultimate event open to everyone on the WTA Tour. I suppose there's a bunch of 125Ks coming up over the next two months, but I'm not going to bore all of you with that uh, right now. So... That's your San Diego recap. I think I'm going to spend more time on San Diego than I do any of our other events because, of course, the rest were all at the 250 level, etc. But, I mean, I do want to talk about our ATP 250s because certainly they were enjoyable throughout the course of the weekend. Let's start with the action in Florence. I already talked about Andre Rublev last week with Gil Grossapod. That, yes, was about the action in Astana and all the action that happened Two weeks ago, whatever it was, I think it was four tour-level events for what it's worth. Um, Ostrava, et cetera, et cetera. I think that pod still holds up, and we talk a lot about a lot of things big picture, so I would recommend that to all of you mini-break listeners who haven't already heard it. That said, a guy we did not talk about in that uh, podcast was your winner of the ATP event in Florence, Felix Ogier Aliassime. Felix winning his second title of the season, both of them on indoor hard courts for what it's worth. He won in Rotterdam earlier this year, now a winner in Florence. FAA drops just one set on his way to the title, and... I mean, it wasn't a highlight reel sort of run for Felix, but it's the sort of run that just reminds you, hey, Felix still amongst his peer group is clearly one of the guys we have to just keep in mind as we look big picture. Moving forward, wins over Nakashima, very much his peer. Lorenzo Musetti, very much his peer. J.J. Wolf, very much his peer. All those guys born in that 1998 to 2001 range. That's a generation of players right there that you lump together on the ATP Tour, and Felix was better than all of them. And, you know, you look for Felix now here in 2022. No doubt it was a disappointing year at the majors, particularly given last season. And outside of Australia, where he makes the quarterfinals, you know, the, uh, I guess, fourth-round Roland Garros, pretty solid as well, considering he got knocked out five sets by Rafa. But I suppose it was a disappointing ending at the majors this year. First round loss at Wimbledon, albeit to Max Cressy, not a loss you would have wanted Felix, uh, expected Felix to take. And then to lose the way he did 4-4-4 four, four, and four to Jack Draper in New York certainly left a sour taste in your mouth. But like, okay, he had two bad slams to end the year. Outside of that, Felix has clearly had a career season here in 2022. You look for Felix has played 26 total events. He's played 13 quarterfinals. He has made the quarterfinals at it at half of the events he's played. 
As such, Felix is very much alive for the year-end final. And yeah, that's a lot of events for him to play. To play 26 on your resume, certainly that's a ton. That means he's playing 250, 500 level events. He's playing in the February, September's of the world, pejoratively, the least significant months on the the ATP or WTA Tour calendar. That said... I mean, you look at the numbers for Felix this year. Again, for him to make 13 different quarterfinals, for him to make uh, three different runs to the final and ultimately, again, earn his first two titles of his career, that's significant growth. For Felix to make a second week at the French Open, an event he had suffered multiple early first week exits at, one of them to the aforementioned Andrea Seppi earlier in the pod, shout out. Um that's signs of growth. And I mean, you look for Felix overall this year in first matches, 16 and six in first round play. Now, I think you feel three of those six first round losses, particularly because one happened at Indian Wells, the other happened in Miami. You know, one of them happened in Monte Carlo. So he's lost first round of three Masters events, as well as the first round of loss at Wimbledon. Four significant first-round losses in his six first-round losses. That said, again, 16-6 and six in first matches that he's played this year. And it's just, you look at the numbers more broadly. Felix overall holding 84.5% of the time. It's his fifth consecutive year of growth. It ranks 13th amongst top 50 players on the ATP Tour, and it's 2% above his career average. Perhaps more importantly, Felix winning 76.5% of his first serve points. That number ranks eighth on the ATP Tour. And the fact that he's free to be able to um, do all of the, you know, the fact that he's able to have, excuse me, this the freedom he does, the success that he has in terms of his uh, hold percentage, despite winning just 49.4% of his second serve points, I think that speaks to the growth in his first serve, that it is, dare I say, one of my new favorite terms, a non-negotiable for Felix moving forward. His ability to land that first serve, set up the first forehand when he's playing on an advantageous surface, such as an indoor hard court, or it's just clicking, as we've seen in the past, in his U.S. Open second week runs, in his Wimbledon second week runs. You know, the quicker the surface, honestly, even in his run to the second week of the French Open this year, that serve, that plus one forehand is just going to keep Felix competitive in every match that he plays, regardless of opponent, regardless of surface. And again, that right there is what makes it a non-negotiable for Felix moving forward. Beyond that, you know, again, for Felix against J.J. Wolf, he took away what J.J. wanted to do most. J.J. obviously wants to be hitting the big first serve, following up with first forehands from any position of the court. Felix just beat him to those spots. Felix was generated a little bit more depth, had a little bit easier time on the backhand wing. Felix was a little bit more fluid in the outer thirds of the court as a mover. You know, Felix was better at the plus one game than J.J. Wolf in this match and better than Brandon Nakashima in this match and just put so much pressure on Lorenzo Musetti in his two and three semifinal victory that, you know, as athletic as Musetti was, as diligent as Musetti was in attacking the ad side of the court and trying to force Felix to hit backhands, none of it mattered. Like, again, Felix was that good in the depth he was generating on the backhand wing and any time, excuse me, he was able to hit his forehand with his feet set, he hit it authoritatively. And 
He drove that ball, whether it's down the line, whether it's short angle, cross court, all of these different things. I was remarkably impressed with Felix throughout the course of his run. And again, for Felix, straight set wins over Nakashima, who's 25 and 12 now since the start of the French Open, has been a rising star this year. Lorenzo Musetti has established himself as a top 30 player. J.J. Wolf currently sitting at a career high in the ATP rankings. Wolf now up to number 56 is the soon-to-be 24-year-old. I mean, Felix just outclassed them in each and every match that he played, and it's just a reminder how good that serve, that first forehand is, his comfort level moving forward. I think he has gotten more fluid as a mover. I think he hits the backhand defensively with a little bit more depth, certainly was forced to do that frequently in his semifinal match against Musetti, yet was patient enough to open up opportunities to hit the forehand from the ad side of the court. I think the 22-year-old Felix Ogier-Aliassime clearly got better this year. I mean, he broke serve 20.7% of the time, which is 0.5% above his career average. Still about 2% below the average of a top 50 ATP player, but he's no longer ranking 44th, 45th, 46th in break percentage amongst top 50 players. He's up to now like 36th, 37th. And, you know, that that leap, that corresponding leap with the improvements on serve I mean, mathematically, that's why you see Felix, again, 13 quarterfinals here this season. That's a top 10 number on the ATP Tour. And, you know, again, there's a reason why Felix entering the week currently sitting at 7th in the points race. Regardless of if Rafa pulls out or not, Felix is in that— Oh, I guess I didn't include Djokovic in that conversation. Felix is holding on to that final spot, and he's got about a 180-point lead over Taylor Fritz with Antwerp to play, Vienna to play, Paris to play. You know, there's still some events on the ATP calendar, but Felix is in the pole position, and that's because week in, week out, again, that forehand, that serve, continue to deliver the goods. That said— Boy, what a week for those of us who have held on to our J.J. Wolf stock, the 23-year-old electric. Whether it was the comeback, Francesco Maestrelli, the young Italian, played the best first set I saw all week. And you just felt like, oh my God, Wolf's going to lose first round in Florence and then... 2-1 2-1 and one in sets 2-3. and three. Straight set victory over Max Cressy, where Wolf, not broken on serve, didn't face a break point. Three-set win come from behind against, against Shasta Bublik. And then the 4-4 four and four victory over Michael Emer was the most impressive because Emer stretched Wolf physically. Emer, elite speed, elite defender on the ATP Tour. And his ability to just ask question after question, he's one of my favorite watches in men's or women's tennis because he's just the perfect contrast always to his opponent, just makes them uncomfortable, forces them to be exceptional. Otherwise, he's going to break you down. But man, Wolf was exceptional. Some of the athleticism he showed, the explosiveness of every forehand that he hits, his ability to work the forehand patterns now, two cross to open up the down the line, two inside out to open up the inside in, his ability to work the short angle now. I think he's gotten more fluid as a mover, and he's a little bit more explosive in the corners, able to get a little bit, have a little bit more time to get his racket on that ball. And when J.J. Wolf gets his racket on the ball, the strength, the power, the athleticism, undeniable. I also thought the backhand looked better. Now, the backhand slice is still a work in progress, but his ability to drive that ball, there's better depth on it now. He's able to generate better angle for himself. He's always been a a willing volleyer, but I think he's just better at it now than he once did. You know, 
The service toss is still a slingshot, but as such, you're never quite sure where J.J. is going to serve. And, I mean, you look for J.J. Wolf this year, again, up to a new career high, number 56. He's back where he belongs after missing the first half of 2021 with various injuries, 40 and 27 overall this season. You look for him at the tour level, 14 and 11, and since the start of the North American hardcourt stretch, quarterfinals Washington, third round U.S. Open, now finals Florence as well. That's a player on the rise. That's a player who is on the precipice of cracking the top 50 for the first time in his career. And anyone who watched J.J. Wolf in college knew his serve, his forehand, they were just on another plane than everyone else's in that 2019 college field. As good as Borna Gojo was, as good as Petros Risoko was, as good as a healthy Will Blumberg was, you were just like, nope, this J.J. Wolf serve forehand combination are the two biggest weapons we have in college. And with how he's improved his speed, of course, he won a couple of challenger titles early in 2019 as well. You know, it just felt like when, not if, he was going to be making his top 100 run and asserting himself in that group moving forward. Because again, the forehand is special. And against anyone other than Felix, you're like, oh my God, this serve, this plus one forehand, is this an elite combination? But obviously stacked up next to Felix Ogier Aliasim, you're like, huh, maybe not. And like, it's still, you look at that match against Felix, fought off nine of the 12 break points that he faced, won 71% of his first serve points, just didn't make enough first serves. And Anytime Felix got a look at a second serve, he took that ball early, and whether it was down the line or cross court, just took it early to take time away from J.J. Wolf. And J.J., again, still just 23 years old, not the most fluid in the corners. He wants to take that ball early on the rise, doesn't want to be playing defensive tennis, and why would you when you've got the weapons that he possesses when you have that comfort level moving forward? That said, you know, again, I'm in on J.J. Wolf. I'm immensely impressed uh, with the former Ohio State All-Americans game. And uh, I just, he looks fit. He's definitely lost a few pounds as well, which has just helped everything. He, he He's just ready to make that leap. And for him to be ranked 56 heading into next season with a bunch of hardcore tournaments to play early in the year. And, you know, you look for Wolf to start next season. Uh, what does he have to defend? Well, you know, he made... A semifinal at the Phoenix Challenger in March. He made quarterfinals of the Sarasota and Tallahassee Challenger. Semifinals Savannah in April. Semifinals Orlando Challenger in June. It's a lot of Challenger-level action to defend. But replaced by that, it'll be playing Delray Beach, playing Acapulco, playing you know, Mets or Marseille or whatever those indoor hardcore, Rotterdam, all these different indoor hardcore events, or maybe the Middle East stretch, Dubai, Doha next summer, uh, next winter, excuse me. All those challenger level events are now replaced by ATP tour level events. That's the luxury a number 56 ranking in the world affords you. And so unequivocally, a leap forward for JJ Wolf here. And again, Florence, a, a, a nice catapult for him moving forward. Shout out to Michael Emer who had fallen out of the top 100 earlier this year, now back up to number 79. You look for Emer 27-23 overall on the year, but perhaps more importantly, since the start of this summer hardcourt stretch, semifinals in D.C., quarterfinals in Mets, semifinals in Florence as well. Uh, just physically, can't, the 24-year-old can't be denied. He asks too many questions, and while the serve isn't the biggest weapon, he holds only 73.5% of the time. That's about 10% lower than your average top 50 player. 
The return is also elite. Just his ability to put ball after ball in play, his ability to absorb pace on that backhand wing and then generate a little bit of his own as well because that backhand backswing is so concise. If you give him time on the forehand, he springs through it. There's a lot to like about Emer's game. Again, he's 24 years old, has floated in between that 50 to 100 range for a little bit of time now, but again, is keeping himself in the mix. He's going to get to continue to play ATP-level events, continue to just ask questions of opponent after opponent. And he every every tournament he plays, again, the serve gets a little bit better. He comes a little bit more confident swinging through that first ball. Uh, I continue to be impressed with Emer. And then for Lorenzo Musetti, 3-0 over Bernabe Zapata Morales, 3-2 over Mackie McDonald to get to the semifinals. He's just a different player on hard courts now, and he's a little bit more comfortable stepping inside the baseline. Of course, his athleticism, he's always been elite as a player who's went 8 to 12 feet behind the baseline, showing off his defensive and improvisational skills, that one-handed backhand. I mean, again, we might for the first time be able to say move over Richard Gasquet. There's a new one-handed backhand king in town the ability to play the drop shot, the short angle, change direction, hit it on the run down the line. It just, it was overwhelmed by the elite pace of Felix. And maybe more than anything else, Felix attacked that Musetti forehand, which still struggles a little bit more on quicker surfaces. That said, the defensive capability of Musetti and those McDonald and Zapata Morales victories, just 20 years old, and he's already an elite athlete, an elite mover on the ATP Tour. So 24 in the rankings, new career high. Obviously, he's going to have plenty of points to defend throughout the course of the year. But another young player we just have to keep our eyes on. He's going to be in the mix moving forward. And it's a really fun group of under-21, you know, talent in Sinner, Musetti, Alcaraz, Runa, Nakashima, Draper, you know, guys like Baez and Brooksby and Lechechka kind of on the outer bounds of that group as well. Younger players who took a little bit longer, but the Ben Shelton's of the world, the Luca Nardi's of the world who are beginning their ascension to the top as well. That's a really fun young group of like five, six, seven, dare I say 10 names who you feel like right off the bat, they can all be top 50 players moving forward. And so, yeah, I'm very, very excited uh, for the rest of these uh, for this generation to continue to age and progress. And again, if you're the original next-gen crew, it's not even the Tsitsipas's, Zverev's, Medvedev's, Rublev's now, Berrettini's of the world. It's that next category, the Chapos, the Demon Hours, the Bublik's, the, you know, that's a significant drop-off from Demon Hour to Bublik, but like the Hatchnov, who just got a huge needed run at the U.S. Open, that generation of players who you're like, can you be top 15? Can you be top 10? If they're not capable of it, there's an even younger generation already perhaps positioning themselves to usurp those spots in the upper bounds of the rankings. So really, really fun storyline to keep an eye on, not only right now, but perhaps even as we look towards the end of 2022 and the start of 2023. That said, enough on Florence. going to go much faster for these final two in Hion as well as Cluj-Napoca. Quickly on Hion, I mean, Andre Rublev has been money 
at 250 events and 500s this year. Winner in Marseille, Dubai, Belgrade, and Hyon so far. 4-0 in finals is Rublev this year. You look for Andre Rublev in terms of total victories on the year. Rublev ranks uh, in terms of overall third. Trails just Tsitsipas and Alcaraz. 47 victories overall on the season. You look in terms of total quarterfinals. Rublev tied for the most. Uh, excuse me, second most. Felix Ogier, Ali seems 13. Ranks number one. Then it's Tsitsipas, Rublev with 12. Rude, Nori, Alcaraz, the only other guys in double digits, speaks to how consistent Rublev has been this year. His nine semifinals tied with Tsitsipas for the most on the ATP Tour. And again, quarterfinals at the U.S. Open, uh, a good run. Quarterfinals at Roland Garros, on paper, a good run. Semifinals, Indian Wells, on paper, a good run. Winner in Dubai, in Marseille, you know, in Hyon and in Belgrade earlier this year. You look for him overall. Rublev, 47 and 16. He's winning 75% of his matches. He's holding 84.2% of the time. That's a top 20 number and, you know, 2.5% above his career average. He's breaking 24.7% of the time, which is a top 25 number and right around his career average. Like, superficially, result rise, it feels like he has had a good season, that he has gotten better. And yet, I don't know. I feel like it might be status quo. I feel like we knew Andre Rublev was this good. That, again, you look at where his quarterfinals have come this season, all 12 of them, and that's a new, again, second most on tour. But, like, where has he made his quarterfinals? Rotterdam, Marseille, Dubai, Belgrade. Feels like that should have happened. Bostad should make the quarterfinals there. City Open, he should. Astana, and he won't. Eight of those 12 come at 500 or 250 level events, where it would be massive disappointments if Rublev didn't make the quarterfinals. The big runs, Madrid, Indian Wells, Roland Garros, U.S. Open. And again, in each of those events, you look for him. He makes semifinals, Indian Wells, knocked out by the eventual champion, Fritz. The others, quarterfinals, Roland Garros, U.S. Open, losses to Tiafo, Chilich, respectively, which you feel like two matches he's probably favored going into, although the Chilich one, we could argue about. Tiafo was playing so well, obviously, at that U.S. Open still. You probably pick Rublev most of the time. Even the loss to Fritz at Indian Wells. Yeah, in you know, in hindsight, now we know Fritz is a top 10 player and has sustained that level all year long. At the same time, there's just meat on the bone. I need Rublev to go 2-1 and one and make the semifinals at the year-end finals. Just kind of show everyone that, no, 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 no. I, I am in that elite of the elite category. I'm closer to, say, a Daniil Medvedev, a Tsitsipas, you know, Alcaraz, that tier of young player than I am to the Nori, Hercots, dare I say, Karen Hachinov tier of guys because Rublev's kind of smack dab in between. Is he tier two? Is he tier three? Probably closer to tier two, but... Dude, you know, again, not a tier one guy, clearly, in terms of a definitive favorite to win the uh, to win a Grand Slam or be a title contender in every slam that he plays. You feel like he's going to get to the second week in every slam. And again, that's minimum tier three guy, but maybe even tier two status. And yet, again, if I ask you who's more likely to win a Grand Slam, him or Matteo Berrettini, you probably take Berrettini. Him or Casper Ruud, you probably take Casper Ruud after this season. Why is that the case? That's something for us to explore in the offseason. That said, you look for Rublev of late. Was excellent in Astana before his straight set loss to Tsitsipas. Was excellent in Hyon, particularly after a three-set first-rounder to winning straight sets over Tommy Paul, Dominic Team, Sebi Korda. 
you know, it was, and I thought Team played better in this event than he probably has all season long. Was striking the forehand so purely. Was down a break for much of the first set against Rublev. Actually got that break back before a really shaky final service game down 4-5, a double fault, and a couple of unforced errors mixed in. But Rublev was there to capitalize. He just constantly kept Korda on the move, didn't allow Korda to have his feet planted at just about any ball Korda was forced to hit, constantly forced Korda to hit the slice win on the stretch. I mean, no doubt, everyone knows, the serve, the first forehand of Rublev, they're non-negotiables. And again, for the soon-to-be 25-year-old, four more titles here this season. Unless things go horribly wrong, he's going to be participating in the year-end championships. And yet, Again, kind of feels like a status quo year. I still really like the game of Andre Rublev. I love the serve. I love the forehand. He's gotten better as a mover, more willing as a volleyer. And he's he just plays with better depth. He's more solid on his backhand wing than he once was. And yet against elite competition, it just feels a little too predictable. And so, yeah, we know what Rublev does well. Again, I don't know what the game... Like, it, it baffles me because that forehand, how confidently he hits it... It doesn't win him that many free points against elite of elite opponents. And sometimes that first serve percentage really dips on him. Again, what goes wrong for Andre Rublev against the elite? Sounds like a case study for us in November, December. But again, this week, playing opponents in Korda, in an injured team, and even a very much informed Tommy Paul in the quarterfinals, all opponents he should beat. Andre Rublev goes ahead and gets the job done. Credit to Rublev. By the way, quick Tommy Paul stat, his nine quarterfinals, that's a top seven number on the ATP Tour this season. Tommy Paul has made that mini-leap. Lowercase b, breakout star of the year, no doubt. But how about Sebi Korda into the final in Hyon? It's his third ATP Tour final of his career, first since Parma in May of last year. And, I mean, how about this murderer's row? Munar, RBA, Murray, Rinder Kanesh before the loss to Rublev and Hyon. Those are four top 75, dare I say, top 50 victories for Korda in a year where he just hasn't been that great. You look for Sebi Korda, the record now overall here in 2022, 30 and 20. So he's winning 60% of his matches, but, you know, was 26 and 19 going into the weekend. Hadn't really had a definitive run since the Estoril semifinal where he beat Felix back in April. Yeah, making the quarterfinals in D.C., beating Tia, uh, beating Dimitrov, beating Baez, that's pretty impressive. But, you know, again, to beat RBA 5-7-6-4-6-4 in the fashion that he did, to have double-digit aces and just to watch him, the, the, the angle he was generating on his forehand. Something changed about that Sebi Korda forehand. He was getting outside the ball more frequently and more comfortably than I had seen him do earlier in his career. And so credit to Korda. I thought he was incredibly impressive. The backhand, laughably fluid. You know, the volleys, the ability to move forward with ease, uh, the size, the touch, the movement, the fluidity. On paper, all the pieces Sebi Korda has form a top 10 player when put together and healthy for an extended stretch of time. That said, Korda kind of had dead legs by the end of this run to the final and obviously played two really physical three-set matches against RBA and Murray, even a physical first set against Rinder Kanesh, even if it was a lot of first-strike tennis. 
still, for Seppi Corda, who said on this podcast earlier in the year that, you know, I started lifting weights for the first time this season, 22 years old, back up to number 36 in the rankings by making this he own final. It's the run he needed. Just a reminder to everyone. He's playing Antwerp, obviously, this week as well. It's just like, no, 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 no. I'm still one of the guys. My size is undeniable. And once I'm fit for a 12, you know, I still we're still waiting for that six-week run or f- even four-week run for Seppi Corda where he makes semifinals or better at you know four events in six weeks or wins back-to-back titles or goes final final back-to-back just has one of those definitive runs that we see so many young players make that catapult them into the top 25 and then they hold on to that momentum moving forward if you're asking me who is one of the players primed for one of those runs in 2023 Sebi Corda would be the first name that comes up on my list um, so just keep an eye on the American here to end this season that said Rinder Kanesh massive run to the semifinals in he own you look for Rinder Kanesh now overall here in 2022 33 and 21 you look for him uh, in terms of semifinals reached it's his fifth semifinal third at the tour level and you know again perhaps even more importantly you look for Arthur Rinder Kanesh seven quarterfinals this year five of them at the tour level you look overall in his career Arthur Rinder Kanesh 12 tour-level quarterfinals. Again, five of them coming this season. All five of them on hard courts, and as many of them being indoors as they were, feel notable. But look, when you put a six-foot-five person with a massive forehand and good fluidity, quality backhand as well, a comfort level moving forward and an indoor hard court, yeah, that player's going to have success. And all this continues to prove is that Rinder Knesh's weapons are real. And again, if you were making your I don't want to say replacement level player, but if you're like, what does a 2022 ATP player, what, you know, I don't want to say the standard player look like, but like if you're trying to make your generic ATP player, what would you want it to be? You'd kind of say Arthur, Arthur Rinderknecht, 6'5", fluid, comfortable off both wings, more dominant on the serve than the return, but has that serve that's going to keep him alive in every match that he plays and has a willingness to hit on the front foot, et cetera, et cetera. So um, again, very much looking forward to Arthur Rinderknecht continuing his career, 27 years old, 51 in the rankings, right when you want to be, uh, when you are in the prime of your career, just getting to play every event that you want to play. And then, of course, shout out to Dominic Team in making a semifinal here on hard courts, his first tour-level semifinal on hard courts since I want to say, and I don't want to be incorrect here, but I believe it's his first since the U.S. Open. And survey says, it, it well, he made the tour-level semifinals at the tour finals in November 2020. But first semifinal in a tour-level hardcore event that's not the ATP tour finals since the U.S. Open in August 2020. So again, Dominic team slowly returning back to form. I thought he was moving extraordinarily well and obviously flashing the elite power that he always flashes. That said, final event, Cluj-Napoca. Shout out to Blinkova, started incorporating the serve in Bali against Paolini down the home stretch of that match to just continue to take a little bit of time away from Paolini. And, you know, look, now you look for Blinkova overall on the year. She is currently up to number 77 for the 24-year-old. And it's a first career WTA Tour level title for Blinkova, who has been up and down throughout the course of this year. You look for Blinkova now here in 2022, 42 and 25. Overall on the year, that said, 15 and 11 now in tour-level events. Obviously came through qualifying, so earned seven victories, was thus 8 and 11 in tour-level events overall entering this one here. But, I mean, look, 
for Blinkova, she's got some non, uh, not quite non-negotiables, but she just plays on her own terms, takes the big swing. I really like how compact her backhand is, her ability to drive through that ball, both cross and down the line. She's comfortable moving forward, a pretty solid volleyer, get a great job just keeping players like Kalanina, Potapova, Paolini on the run, not allowing them to get into their bag of tricks throughout the course of her run in, throughout championship weekend. And, you know, again, wasn't lacing in over 60% of her first serves either. And yet that first serve is a weapon. No doubt about that allows her to set up everything else that she does so well. And again, credit to Blinkova, first title of her career, 24-year-old back up to number 79 in the rankings, positions herself well. Credit to Jasmine Paolini into a first final here on the year, first tour-level final since Portero's last season. You look for Paolini, creeps up just above 500 now. Overall for the season, Jasmine Paolini now here in 2022, 25 and 24 overall, back up to number 67 in the live rankings. It's about like 5'1", 5'2". You can get the ball above her shoulder. You can definitely jam her with pace. That said, when she has a clean look at the ball, yeah, the forehand back swings big, but oh my God, does the ball explode off of Paolini's strings. Very good week for her. And then I feel like I already talked a ton about both Podpova and Wang Shiyu, but those are two players I would circle massively as breakout stars as we look towards 2023. The, the opportunity to make capital B breakouts, I should say, next season. That said, I know that's limited on Cluj-Napoca, but we got a 1,000 level in Guadalajara to look at this week. And Plenty of other fun WTA storylines down the home stretch as well, so I hope you'll all forgive me for that brief synopsis. That said, that's your look at Championship Weekend. Clearly, we are ending on a high note here this year. Ooh, that's going to be our title for today's podcast. But again, I know now that it's Tuesday, when I'm done recording this, you all are ready to turn the page towards next week. Hoping to have our dear friend Nate Walrath on Tuesday's show for a little Tennis Point Tuesday for all of you listeners. Set the scene for everything happening over the course of the next week in the pro tennis world. Of course, a shout out as always to our super producer, Daniel Westoff, for the f- of an any job he does day in, day out, making all of our content possible. A shout out as well to our friends at Tennis Point, tennis-point.com. The promo code is CR15 for all of the latest and greatest prices. Lots of fun pods coming up on the horizon here on here at Cracked Rackets. Excuse me. We have aces of the day. Going to get a little bit more sporadic down the season's home stretch. But if you're looking for preview content, our Great Shot podcast feed is the place for you. It's almost time for our 2023 college tennis preview to begin. So be on the lookout for that. And I've got some fun guests planned over the course of the next week and month as well. So of course, this podcast, the Great Shot Podcast, our mini break podcast, be sure to like, rate, subscribe, and review. Share them with your friends as well. We always appreciate that. With that said, for our super producer, Daniel Westoff, our friends at Tennis Point, from all of us here at both Crack Rackets and the Tennis Channel Podcast Network, I'm your host, Alex Gruskin. You know what we say. That's the break. We'll talk to you all tomorrow. Thanks, everyone.